G'day everyone and welcome to TYT Interviews. Well, as you know, the United States remains the only nation on Earth not a part of the Paris Climate Accord. Our President Donald Trump thinks that global warming was created by China to make US manufacturing less competitive. And just this week, the EPA, or Environmental Protection Agency, said they weren't even sure if they were allowed to use the word climate. So I brought onto the show someone who definitely is allowed to use the word climate, Andrew Revkin. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Now, you've been writing about climate slash global warming for over 30 years. I have a 1988 edition where you're talking about the greenhouse effect. Yeah, I found it on eBay recently. Yeah, you bought your exciting. own work. Yeah. <laughs> but you've also been writing for the New York Times. You wrote for the New York Times for 21 years. You're now the strategic strategic advisor for science and environmental journalism at the National Geographic Society. Yeah. So long career talking about climate change. Indeed. So I want to ask you, of all the 30 years you've you've reported on climate under many different presidents. <laughs> Where does this year rank on the scale of optimistic to pessimistic? Well, in a weird way, um, and I wrote about this uh, when I was briefly at ProPublica in the middle of all that, um, Trump is, uh, he's doing a lot of damage to regulatory institutions like the EPA, but the climate problem, here's the weird thing, the climate problem is so big that it seems to mostly defy presidents' interests, whether they're in the interest of doing something more or, or doing something less. They're, if you look at trajectories for emissions, and uh, even for basic science research, and I wrote a piece 10 years ago, um, 2007, 2006, more than 10 years ago, on declining R&D budgets, basic science budgets for energy, um, uh, you know, right in a time when, and you look through, I mean, if you look through time, you see that's a bipartisan sort of slumber party. That science just, has been going down. Yeah, uh, on energy, on the basic things you would need to do if you really want to address this problem in an aggressive way. There's very little sign that we take it seriously, especially when you compare that R&D investment to the R&D we put into um, uh, defense, like making better weapons or you know, better cyber stuff. It, it's, you know, so energy research is like this and defense research is like this. It's way higher. And well, that, I want know, to challenge a, you on that, though, yeah. because President Barack Obama said that climate change was the greatest threat, well, he said there's no threat that's a greater threat than climate change. And yet only 20 to 45%, less than half of the United States, depending on which surveys you look at, say that they're actually worried about climate change. 50% of the United States population don't even believe that we're causing climate change. So why should we be investing more than we are? Like everyone's worried about terrorism. Why should we be oh, investing I, Well, in no, no, I mean, right. If you take it as a pro if public interest should drive our decisions on how we spend taxpayer money, and absolutely. And by the way, that's after 30 years of me telling the world through various ways, this is something that's important. You know, it's not just presidents, but the journal, you know, journalists, uh, the, the, the gray beards, I kind of have some ways, um, have been at this for a long time, you know? And then, you know, we all, we've won awards and, uh, you know, done cover stories and stuff. and. And I learned along the way that, again, this is sort of bigger than I grew up. When I grew up in the 20th century, environmental problems had a certain character. You identify the problem, the ozone layer or you know, conventional pollution from smokestacks, and you pass a law and you, know, you kind of like, it goes away. Mm -hmm. And I started to realize that the climate problem is, again, it's got these dimensions that are way bigger than that. that it's, and if you just look at the curve for carbon dioxide, you know, the main emission, and you focus on it, you say, wow, this is terrible. And it's heading in a direction that's going to be really bad for the world in the long haul. And, but then you look at every other curve, and they all have the same shape, phosphorus, nitrogen, 
you know, we're in the middle of a big surge of our potency as a species that's way beyond this thing called CO2 and climate. And that's why, why I think when you start to appreciate that scope, it's like, oh, um, this is something bigger than just a simple regulatory solution. And that's why it's defied most presidents, most media, most, uh, and that there are other reasons, of course, as well. Do you think they just don't know what to do about it? It's just too hard? I think, well, you know, one of my liberating moments came when I realized when something is that big and complex, you know, climate change is basically everything. It's, it's not just CO2 in the atmosphere, it's changing the oceans, it's uh, the solutions are not just about technology, uh, the transitions and energy systems take a long time. When you look at something and realize it's that big, you can either get really bummed out and paralyzed or you can sort of say, well, where's my piece of it? Mm. And look at your own skill sets, you, whether you're young and still have your career ahead of you, or whether you're older and you know, can make some choices about how to maximize the output from the, the, the latter part of your career. And you know, that's kind of sort of where I am. Although, you know, I'm hoping the latter part means decades to come, but. but so do uh, I. Yeah, well, you know, and then moving toward uh, at National Geographic Society, for example, I'm helping build a mechanism for um, supporting a lot more communication uh, innovation in service of sustainability issues, including climate change. And that, and not just, and not just journalism, you know, anyone can communicate now in a way that was impossible. It used to be, again, in the 20th century, I grew up with this guy named Walter Cronkite, you know, who basically said, that's the way it is. And <laughs> you didn't have to, you know, you, you relied on these authority figures or the page one of the New York Times, you know, yeah. or the Washington Post. And now, uh, not only um, does the reader or viewer have to do more of the work, but the reader or the viewer can actually be a good communicator. So I'm about sort of expanding this definition of who gets to do the communication. Who can talk about it. And you know, what can you do with your networks, uh, whether you're a, you know, a journalist or a citizen uh, from the local to whatever scale. Now, you're hoping that you've got many decades ahead of you working on helping people to communicate, maybe one or two. Did you yeah. say just a few? Well, I said maybe, you know, <laughs> at least a few. Some years ahead. Yeah. But look, this has been 30 years you've been talking about this yeah. issue, and you know, I think probably less people believe in climate change in the United States today than they would have back in the 80s. Does this ever make, do you ever see covers like this from 30 years ago and think, man, I'm a failure? Well, uh, well I've, I've written about and spoken about uh, my mistakes. They're not really mistakes, though. It's like... Not to put all of climate change on No, your no, 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 but, but what I learned, you know, it was like, so that was 1988. It was around 2006 when an editor first asked me, hey, why is, this, why is there so much yelling about this issue? And can you do a piece for the Weekend Review section at the time? So I wrote this piece, uh, ended up on the headline, um, Yelling Fire on a Hot Planet. And it kind of got criticized by everybody, the left and the right, because it said, um, you know, if you just perceive this as a rhetorical fight between believers and, uh, and, uh, and skeptics, or whatever you want to call them. Denier hadn't really become a big part of the conversation yet at that point. If you believe that, then the, the, what I was reporting in that piece would be really inconvenient, because what it said, I basically dug in on the behavioral science for the first time. You know, social sciences, I talked to a sociologist at UC Irvine, and Helen Ingram, I think was her name, and she said, well, the problems that bring people to a voting booth are things that are soon salient and certain. Mm. And I thought about that in the context of climate change, and it's like, oh my God. And then, not soon, it's not salient. Well, you know, aspects of it are real time, but, but the big impacts, you know, many feet of sea level rise are 
you know, our kids, grandkids' generation will be the ones who will be in this kind of long, long slope toward lots of challenges. And then uh, I interviewed Dan Kahane, a guy at Yale, who I'm sure you know, who, he, who brought me into the darkest terrain of all, which is this uh, work he's done that he calls cultural cognition. There's a website, culturalcognition.net. And, and he does, he's done empirical work that shows that, um, that more science literacy actually doesn't, more science literacy is at the two ends of the spectrum on global warming concerns. Like the, those who are completely dismissive and those who are completely worried are, are where you have the most literacy on like what's a greenhouse gas and all that stuff. So there's and, people that really get the science but still right. really don't believe in climate change. Yeah, and that's, you know, again, as a journalist, where you spend all your days com thinking, communicating science is the path to public, you know, momentum on an issue like that, and you realize, oh, this is bigger. As I said, it's not just bigger because it's, you know, we're in this big surge of resource appetites. It's also bigger because, because our behavioral norms, you know, evolved to do very different things. They respond to immediate threats, and, and we're really bad at that stuff. And that was the scariest science of all. I, uh, so you could be the best communicator in the world, but because of human behavior, we might still never get there. Unless, unless you communicate that science too. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know what, it's normal that you yell at someone who's in a different tribe than you. When an issue becomes tribal, mm -hmm. which is you know, abortion, gun rights, global warming, nuclear power, uh, GMOs. All the fun issues. You know, all the fun issues, they're also very consequential ones. Um, it's actually unremarkable that people would be divided. Uh, and that can lead, but that also leads to opportunities too. There's, there's absolutely messages from that science that say, well, um, if you maybe don't talk about global warming, <laughs> it, because uh, as there was a, there's a great um, CNN journalist who went to um, <laughs> the most skeptical county in America on global warming in 2015, Woodward County, Oklahoma. John Sutter is his name. The most skeptical of climate change. Most skeptical. Don't climate. believe in climate change. Yeah, uh, and he went there and just did these simple interviews with people against the gray screen. You know, what do you think about? this, that, and the other. And the first minute and a half, it's on YouTube, it's fantastic. Um, the first minute and a half, if you're worried about climate change, you, you, you just want to kind of give up and jump, jump off a cliff into the ocean or something. Because uh, there's a woman, uh, looks like a very nice woman, she says, you know, out here, out here Al Gore's name is like a cuss word. Oh and, and then there's a guy who owns a local oil company and uh, he says, only God controls the environment. And so by a minute and a half, you're kind of like, okay, and then this, the second half, though, is the same guy, the blue shirt guy with the oil company guy, says, you know, we, put, we, we have solar panels on half of our roof, and I'm going to finish the job. We want to get off the grid entirely. So and they're acting for sustainability, even though they hate the idea of climate change. Well, and the, the, the great thing about that conversation is you realize, here's a guy, his motivation to get off the grid is all about being a libertarian. He, he doesn't want anybody controlling his life, you know, whether it's... Hillary Clinton, and, or a utility. And so you would never convince him by sort of badgering with messaging about global warming that, that that's the reason he should do this thing. In fact, one of the morals of that story to me and, uh, is that not only would it uh, not work, but it could be counterproductive because you're essentially painting him as the enemy. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand this issue the way I do, <laughs> then, I, you you're know, an idiot. Then, then why would he support, uh, let's say, a subsidy for solar? You know, so do you think that the solution then is to overcome this huge 
proportion of the population that don't believe in climate change to just give up on trying to convince them but convince them on something else like we really need solar power for national defense or we really need solar power for the american economy like should we be just ignoring climate change and working on something else well no i, I don't think it's that simple I, I but i do think and and this is kind of what i did in my own career when i moved into blogging mm -hmm. you know dot earth which i created in 2007 I s tried to create it as a um, interrogatory, conversational relationship with people. Um, a place to, you know, not every piece had this feel, but where I would test an issue, you know, some like Lester Brown on food and Vaclav Schmiel, great name, Manitoba, the genius, a resource history genius on, on food. And, and one of them, Vaclav Schmiel said, no, you can't talk to Lester Brown, he's, he's nuts, you know, he's like, He's, he's a, so extreme on these issues. Yes. And, and I said, Lester, he's part of the conversation. So can we find, I said, Vaclav, can we find some way to, for you to respond to some of his thoughts and vice versa? And they, they didn't do it face to face. It wasn't like on a stage. That would have been great too. Because mm -hmm. you know, human, human beings, the more human they are, the harder it is to, like, to hate just them. sort of hate somebody. But the, so I got them as this sort of middle child, you know, can just let's find one thing you guys agree on and 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 this relates to climate change too but it was that they both agreed that the middle class diet of 2050 will not resemble the middle class diet of today that there's just no way to have that much meat and all that stuff and i thought that was a great achievement just that one little they all so, agree if I, on that. so that you know my, so what that means is my communication model came, moved way away from you know exposition you know telling you here are things you need to learn about climate change and here are you know the solutions to uh, so from communication to conversation mm, finding and the things we can agree on and going yeah. from there and then conversation also has to have its own um, you know a lot of people as I learned uh, from someone recently uh, most people spend a conversation just waiting to uh, make their point yeah. they're not actually listening so finding ways to structure conversations that have real meaning where people are really engaging on ideas as opposed to just sort of waiting to make their point and then to go on to the next one is, is important and there's a skill set there and but not very very little of that exists in our current uh, media market well that's a really good point that you make because it's sometimes hard to find something that we can all agree on especially on a network like tyt network where i'm sure right now there's going to be comments from the trolls in the comment section people saying that they don't believe in climate change and that you're a, a lib the lefty and that you don't know what you're talking about and you've been sent here by China to make us less competitive. <laughs> so when people are saying those sort of things, they're trolling climate communicators, yeah. how do you find something in common with them? It's hard, uh, especially online because it's so impersonal. It's so easy to spew. Um, at Dot Earth, um, every comment that came in, uh, we had to mo I moderated and it was just me. It was like a one person little enterprise. And, that would be frustrating. And, and I was, I very rarely, you know, cut them out. Um, but part of it, part of what you have to do is sort of think of it like a playground where you have, idea, the ideal playground is where you have clear rules and, and consistent enforcement, you know. And, and, and an emphasis, um, but this only works if there are moderated comments. If it's just on, then that gets challenging. One thing I did on, on Dot Earth that I experimented with, we never moved forward with, and maybe, actually maybe Young Turks could do this. I found out that um, the code for our comments back then uh, at the Times 
allowed you to embed a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. So I one day I just said to my readers, hey, you know, post, post a little video greeting to your other daughter's, you know, passengers. And uh, just so there was a humanization, because you see these comment threads and it's just text. Text, and, yeah. And, and the first woman to do it was, uh, her name was Wang Suya. She was in Tokyo. She's Chinese, but she was in Tokyo. And, and she posted the cutest comment. It basically said, Hello, Dr. Earth. Uh -huh. I, I'm Wang Suya in Tokyo, and I'm very happy to be part of your Dr. Earth community. And so oh. just, I, I kind of thought of it like the old Harry Potter movies where that newspaper, um, the um, Daily Prophet, you know, was, was sort of dynamic and- Yeah, uh, you just, see the movie. Just humanizing things, again, kind of like what I was saying about, you know, having a conversation with somebody is different than having a debate with somebody. And if you're just girded for debate, then it's hard. And none of, all that takes work. Um, Although YouTube comments don't take any work, they just make them go up unless they're, you know. Well, this can be part of the mission to civilize. If you're watching this interview and you'd like to leave a video message for us or any, you know, a URL for us to look and put a face to your comments, please do. We would love to see them. And, and it is a little bit like uh, uh, training a dog. <laughs> I've learned to uh, reward positive behavior, ignore negative behavior. It tends to lead people more to uh, Oh, but it's so hard when people it's say that. It's totally like, hard. Yeah. Now, speaking of things that are difficult, you've got a brand new book out called Weather. Yeah. It's a picture book. It's got, <laughs> it's an illustrated history of weather. You've got nice, beautiful graphics in here. Why a picture book? You've had three decades of writing yeah. text. Did you switch to pictures because you realized we're just all too dumb to understand? Well, it was, the publisher had this idea. No. <laughs> No, no, no. The publisher had this idea uh, way back in 2012. Sterling, someone there, an editor, got in touch with me. They wanted me to write an Earth book, like the history of. This is a hundred moments in the history of our relationship with climate and weather, and they wanted an Earth book that was like 250 moments. And I was like, that's way too much like work. <laughs> that was 2012. A lot of and they kind of circled back to me and said, well, we want to do a weather book. And they have like the engineering book, the law book, the medicine book, and it's sort of illustrated history of and idea and disciplines and stuff. And I thought, finally, that's cool. I could do 100. And my wife got involved. She's an environmental Your educator. wife is Lisa. He's Lisa also Michaela, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we uh, did it. Husband and wife too. And we were civil and didn't really end up throwing things at each other. <laughs> and it became kind of an adventure. She found, um, uh, and some of them are simple. And not, there are not all climate changes, blah, blah, blah. There, we have a lot. There's a, many items on the evolution of the idea and now the demonstrated reality of human driven climate change, but there's also watermelon snow, which I never even knew. Oh, I didn't existed. even get to that bit. No, and it say. turns out in the 1800s, this um, explorer scientist um, came, saw pink snow in um, the Arctic, and he brought some back, and of course it just became water, you know, <laughs> they didn't have a fridge. And uh, a botanist, uh, a Scottish botanist, I think, realized it was uh, algae. Ah, that, makes, that was making uh, it pink. Yeah, and so that's in there too. And what I like about those kinds of stories is they're, uh, it's all about inquiry. You know, wow, what is that? It's about science. You know, so they're not just, and the, it's not like just the, the, it could have been a book of weather that's like the worst storm, the biggest, the hottest, blah, blah, blah. And it has a couple of those too, but it's about, it's about learning. And, and climate change is part of a much bigger learning curve that uh, we are on and remain on. Uh, geoengineering is one of these big frontiers coming up. Can we uh, artificially cool the climate to make up for what we're doing to it? Probably the biggest puzzle of our time is how do we fix what we've done to the climate. Yeah. I want to challenge you on the title though, because sure. it's called Weather. 
but yeah. you're a climate reporter. You've had a long history in climate change. Mm -hmm. Are we not confused enough about the <laughs> difference between weather and climate? Why did you pick the name weather and not climate change? Well, uh, you know, on any particular day, it's the weather that matters. Uh, climate is the average of weather conditions over a period of time. And it felt to me a little bit like a more of an open approach to get to readers who might immediately recoil, either because they think a book on climate is just woe is me, mm. or because they have an ideological resistance. And, and to me, it was the, the, the importance of this journey there. It's like my journey as a journalist for 30 years. Uh, basically, Lisa and I tell this, the, the big moment of the journey that we're on right now with climate change is 99.9% .9 of the human journey has been a one-way street. Whether did the climate system did stuff, a storm or a rising seas over a long period of time, mm -hmm. and you either moved, died, or you know adjusted. You put on clothes or moved into a cave. We don't. So it was one-way street, and now it's clear it's becoming a two-way relationship, and that's um, that's a big deal for a species. And it's only been like 50 years of really sort of a firm understanding of that. Um, and that's in the, you know, in the history of human knowledge building, that's, that's a microsecond. And then it's really important, the guy, 1896, Svante Arrhenius, this, this Swedish scientist who won the first Nobel Prize, um, he is the one who really articulated for the first time that if we burn a lot of coal, we're going to warm the climate. When uh, was that? 1896. 1896. Yeah, but here's More the More than 100 years ago. I know, but here's the interesting thing. At his time, the end of the 19th century, you know, we were all into progress and industrialization and cities and energy was a great thing, you know. And so his interpretation of that was that uh, we, we were going to see uh, more, you know, warmer climates would be a great world ahead for a long period of time. And that says, says to me an important thing, which is the, kind of the, the cultural and historical context when an idea emerges mm. really shapes how we see it. How we see it. Yeah. And when you think about global warming from greenhouse gases, again, it merged right, at the, right after we had passed the, t the Clean Air Act and we had solved the ozone depletion problem, the CFCs with a treaty. So that's why everyone jumped on the idea that, well, we just need a new treaty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a new, or, or, or use the Clean Air Act to solve the climate problem. And it's so much bigger than that. It's a bad fit, but it's, it's part of our mental construct. We're like, we, it fixed the ozone, so it'll yeah, fix climate. They, oh, by the way, one of the worst, depressing, most, most depressing things is we, one of the most misinterpreted realities still is that uh, when you ask the average person uh, about global warming, they think it's the ozone. They still think it's, it's the, the ozone, ozone problem. Well, and of course, such a good job and it's complicated. You know, they are kind of like, there are some aspects that are interrelated. So uh, I don't know, it's just like a journey. And then- um, You've got a hundred moments in here. Yeah. Which one's your favorite? Um, the invention of the windshield wiper. Why? Well, it's one of my favorites. It was invented by a woman yeah. in 1902 yes, from Alabama, who was up north um, in the winter and saw a trolley car operator uh, having a terrible time keeping his window clean. And she sketched out some, how to have a reciprocating rubber thing going that way. And she worked with a guy back in Alabama and they, and the patent is beautiful. You know, Google has now Google patents search, mm -hmm. found the patent, it's written beautifully. And again, inquiry, you know, she saw a problem. She, she was a citizen, an engineer. You know, she thought she could come up with a solution. It has a kind of a downside where she got, the patent was granted, um, but 
uh, it expired in 1917, just before automobiles became a big oh, deal. No. So she never, uh, she never got profited to cash in on that, that one. But, but that's pretty cool. And uh, right around the same time, the invention of air conditioning was wow. probably one of the most momentous changes in our relationship with climate. Because yeah. remember, the, the book is about the relationship, not just, you know, yeah, findings. The climate uh, and responding yeah, to Yeah, and climate. that one's pretty cool, too. Now, my last question for you is, yeah. you're a musician. I am. What musical instruments can you play? Um, guitar, banjo, mandolin, in that order, declining scale. <laughs> and declining. really bad fiddle. Like, that's what we have there. And sometimes you sing about climate. I do. I just did uh, yesterday. Yeah. I, I, um, I, have, I don't have tons of environmental songs, but I wrote one called Liberated Carbon. About, <laughs> it's a three-minute history of our, our um, energy journey. And then another one called uh, The Flood, about a flash flood in the Rockies in 1995. That, um, so that's a song about climate vulnerability. And yeah, I can't not. You know, to me, it's just part of being a multimedia storyteller. You know, I well, think, that's, I I think that's all part of the. You've had th three decades of writing about climate. Yeah. Now you've got a picture book. Are you <laughs> going to put out an, uh, like a kid's album of climate now? I haven't done a kid's album yet. I, I do have a couple of kid's stories I think I'm working on. But I just think, again, like I said about the climate problem more generally, I think anyone can find a way to get dug in on it. Um, and whether you're a musician or an artist, there are these great sonifications of, of that term is, you know, how do you turn data into sound uh, of the climate problem? There's a cellist. He was a student at the University of Minnesota who, who was a cellist student and I think in earth um, environmental science. And he created this wonderful piece. It's, it's just um, the uh, historical record of uh, temperature right, for the last 150 years, but through a series of translating into notes on the cello. So it's kind of got this up, 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 and then lots of, lots of variability, because, you know, climate has a huge amount of implicit natural variability, and our, our signal is this uh, note that's kind of in the background. So I thought that was fantastic. Now, did it change anybody's views or whatever? I don't know yet, but some of that has to be kind of let go of, to the idea, you kind of some way, if we just do it this way, then we'll solve this problem. Change their ideas. And it's, again, it's going to take time. It'll actually take time. I mean, as I even said, more than thirty. Well, years. well, here's so thirty years ago, a great science magazine made its money uh, selling uh, by selling tobacco ads. That says to me, wow, that's amazing that that happened at that time. Kind of like Arrhenius thinking CO2 was great, um, but it also means that things change. Yeah. You know, the norms of what was that song? <laughs> the norms, <laughs> the norms of the '80s are not the norms of now, and that's uh, there's hope in that too. So thirty years ago, Discover magazine was selling tobacco yeah. on the back cover, yeah. but things have changed. Maybe 30 years from now, we're going to be looking back yeah. and saying, wow, remember when no one believed in climate change? That yeah. was a funny time, wasn't it? I think Fingers there's crossed. some of that there. En enriched flavor, low tar, a solution with merit. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, if you, no matter if you've got a music-loving family member that doesn't believe in climate change or a picture-book-loving family member that doesn't believe in climate change, uh, get yourself a copy of Weather. Um, it's hopefully less confronting than a book called Climate, and uh, learn a lot about our history of our interaction with weather. It's a beautiful book. Gorgeous yeah. illustrations. Well, thank you. And I'd thank love to hear so other, I'd love to hear people's, their favorite milestones. Everyone has a, an experience with weather that they, that really jogged them, you know, everyone. And so I'd love to hear some of those. Too. Well, today it's the first day of spring in New York City okay. and snowing. That's right. So that's, yeah. I don't like the snow, um, <laughs> but I'll endure it. So sometimes I, when I hear about climate change, I'm like, oh, you know, if only we could make it a little bit warmer and have a bit less snow. 
that would be all right. But it doesn't quite work that way, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, un unlike what many senators might believe. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on TYT Interviews, Andy. Anytime. And keep writing about climate change. One day we'll Anytime. get there.